Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Mind Shifters Radio with your co-host, the Forgiveness Doctor, Dr. Michael Rice, and his wife, Jeannie. Michael and Jeannie share with you the wisdom of the ancient Aramaic internal process of forgiveness. They offer tools and support five days a week. They will support you in building a solid foundation within yourself to live in pure love. In Aramaic, Rachma. Michael is the author of Why Is This Happening to Me Again? For more information on Michael and Jeannie, please visit www.whyagain.com. And now your co-host, the forgiveness doctor, Dr. Michael and Jeannie Rice. To the brightness within you and the truth that is rooted within me. Hi and welcome to Mindshifters Radio with the forgiveness doctor, Dr. Michael Rice. I'm Jeannie Rice, your co-host, along with Dr. Tim Hayes. And we welcome you to the show. Today is Monday, November the 30th, 2015. And our call-in number is 646-200-4169. Press 1, and that puts you in queue to talk to us. And we would love to hear your comments and your questions because that makes this your show. And we also have a special guest with us today and a special program, which Michael will introduce And so Gail is already turned on, so let's welcome Michael. Thank you, dear heart, and welcome everyone to the show. We're honored and uh, blessed that you're with us today. Much appreciation. And uh, we're going to take this week, and we're going to be looking at uh, the correlation between the forgiveness process from the first century Aramaic and... 12-step traditions, and we've invited several people. Uh, Gail will will be starting off with us today and introducing us to some of the history of the uh, the 12-step traditions and our, our vision for this week. We're going to carry this conversation on all week, and I've invited several people to, uh, to call in and to share some thoughts with us. But um, our vision is that we create a space of support for anyone who has ever had or has any challenges in the arena of alcohol, drugs, or any form of addiction, and especially with holiday time coming up. It's a uh, a time that, uh, for many people, drives them to drink. And so we're here to uh, create a space of healing and support, and we'd love to have your input. And so, uh, Jeannie, thanks for that introduction, and we'll just say hello to Gail and see what Gail has on her mind to begin our conversation around the 12 Steps and First Century Aramaic Forgiveness. Gail, welcome. Thank you. What an honor and a privilege. Thank you so much for inviting me to do this. Well, we're delighted and we're honored. And, you know, when you were at Heartland this summer, you shared uh, a lot of information about the 12-step program and, and in particular some of how it correlates and perhaps some Aramaic links. And so I'd love to hear more about it. And, again, we want to really inspire and create a space for people to look for support and to dig in and do their work of healing around especially the holidays when 
many uh, family traditions uh, lead into the same uh, patterns of uh, of abuse and uh, trauma around the holidays. So we're delighted you're here. Welcome. Absolutely. I'll start out with my history with you first, and then um, then I'll talk about my 12-step history, and then I'll go into um, AA history and how um, 12 steps came into mean. Um, cool. I was introduced to you um, not this past September, but the September before last via Dale Allen Hoffman. I was out at Mountain Light Sanctuary during a retreat, and he talked about you. And two weeks after I left North Carolina from that retreat, I looked in my notes and I found you and I looked you up online and explored the website and immediately um, started to read the book, um, Why Is This Happening to Me Again? And decided when you asked um, Richard at the end of the book, do you want to go into the desert for 40 days? I made that commitment as well and started doing worksheets on my own and listening to the show. So my year anniversary of listening to you and Dr. Tim and Jeannie on the radio show, what came up a year, November 1st, and that was huge, um, was able to look at the growth. And then, of course, I attended the intensive in Florida and was in Heartland this summer as well. So lots of changes for me personally, um, and it's just uh, – it's amazing. I'm I'm um, very grateful. Have a lot of gratitude, and it's just been an honor and a blessing to be able to um, finally find you and to finally um, be able to start doing this work. So it's very much an honor to be on the radio show today. Um, cool. Delighted, and, history- and I'll I'll Go just ahead. I'll just throw out the thought that. Uh, if anyone as the conversation unfolds has any thoughts uh, to uh, to add, we'll just you know maybe from time to time break in and and let someone else just share something of their experience and uh, and we'll just unfold this conversation. I understand you're going to be with us today, tomorrow, and Wednesday to be able to share, yeah, and we've and invited I, several other people with a 12-step history as well. Absolutely, and I'll be able to be on on Thursday and Friday as well too this week. Well, awesome. That's the way it's working out too. So I'll just be listening and see what everybody else has to offer as well. I look forward to that. Um, as far as personal addiction history, um, I believe that I was born an alcoholic. <laughs> um, I remember my first drink at five. Um, I remember I liked the effect and that's what makes an alcoholic an alcoholic is, is the effect that alcohol has on the body. Um, I had some things happen to me as a teenager and my um, drinking got a lot worse in order to get away from not having to feel those things. Um, I also know as being an alcoholic, um, I always felt like I was on the outside looking in. I never felt comfortable on my own skin. And when I discovered alcohol, it, um, the clouds parted, the angels sang, the butterflies flew, and I finally found a solution to feeling comfortable in my own skin. And then um, it got to the place where the consequences of my drinking were worse than what, you know, being able to be comfortable in my own skin. So I had to look at stopping. And then, um, then I discovered 12 steps. I was actually um, introduced to 12 step groups when I was 21 
and I was actually on the date on a date. Um, I <laughs> um, I was dating a, a, a man um, that got out of treatment. He got three DUIs, and he just got out of treatment. And I had a driver's license. He didn't, and so he took me to an open meeting, and I loved it. I fell in love with the meetings. I fell in love with the whole being able to choose your own higher power, but I wasn't ready to let go of the alcohol at that time. And um, so basically I was introduced at 21. I went to Al-Anon because his drinking was worse, and I didn't get sober until I was 32. And um, I was about ready to lose my children. And so that was the consequences. And then I did what we all do when we get into 12-step programs and we have to stay sober and, um, you know, work the steps with a sponsor. And one of the things, one of the challenges for me was that I needed to know that there was more to the 12 steps than just somebody from 1935 um, just writing something down and saying, hey, do this, this works. And so I did a lot of digging into try to tie this to something more substantial and um, that was really important for me to be able to do so anyway that's my history in a a little bit Um, the next thing that I was going to say too is that I'm very well aware um, I'm sure that there's other 12-step people on the program um, that there are traditions in place to protect Alcoholics Anonymous and other 12-step groups um, from um, basically being destroyed, and I'm um, am wanting to honor the traditions as much as possible, especially the 11th tradition, which is to um, personal anonymity at the, the level of press, radio, and film. And I'm well aware that this is radio, and so I'm not sure in my last name, but a lot of people probably know what my last name is anyway, and the other thing too is I'm sharing from an experience of from my experience um with the history and with the steps and with the traditions, not hopefully not coming off as a spokesperson. I'm not trying to be a spokesperson for Alcoholics Anonymous at all, because if I drink tomorrow then I do not want that to look poorly upon AA or any other twelve step group as well. So I just want to throw that out there. So any comments in between before we dive into AA history? Cool. No, I, I guess I would have a question about, uh, you know, did it really make you feel comfortable in your skin or did it prohibit you from feeling in your skin? So that was better than the, the pain. That's that's my experience of, uh, of um, all of the addictions is that it's really, you know, mostly an anesthetic so I don't have to feel at all. I would say a combination of the both, of both, to tell you the truth. Uh, I guess enough of an anesthetic to I didn't have to feel so I was more comfortable, which is probably what you said. Um, So, yeah, absolutely. And and then it became, after I discovered alcohol, um, it became about the supply. How can I feel this way or not feel this way and continue to not feel this way? And... um, and function, and it was all about the next drink and or drug, and not um, spending the whole paycheck, or not ending up in bed with somebody that I didn't know, or you know. And I never ended up getting arrested 
report anything um, that that was alcohol related anyway, but it uh, you know not getting in trouble and and that kind of stuff. So it, it most definitely became a balance. Therefore, uh, it was probably an eleven year struggle of trying to balance that feeling better and and not having to deal with consequences. Maybe even longer than that, actually, longer than 11 years. But okay, well, we're doing good so far. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, go for it. <laughs> <laughs> so, All right. Anyway, <laughs> um, a, a, another thing that um, I'm afflicted with besides besides drug addiction is attention deficit disorder. Um, I also um, deal with PTSD. <laughs> and um and severe depression and that's a lot of the reasons why I drank too was um to control that and self medicate that. And I heard a loud beep. Am I still on? You're you you're loud and clear, yes. You're coming to just okay. fine. And um Okay, where was I? Uh and so reading comprehension for me is difficult and has been for me. And uh, reading comprehension ever since I was 16 and was attacked at the little um, restaurant that I was working at, uh, I, in order to compartmentalize that and do academics, it became very difficult um, reading comprehension. So when I got into Alcoholics Anonymous, I attended a lot of um, study groups. So I could listen to other people's interpretations, and um, and a, a history has a tendency to go with going to the study groups. Um, AA has been going on for 80 years. It was founded in 1935. So and and everything has changed in such a short period of time. The language has changed. The language that is in the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous and the language that we use today is different. And so I did a lot of a lot of studying, a lot of listening, and going to groups. Like I said, I had to reconcile these guys in 1935 that came up with this group with trying to find a God of my own understanding. And so I did a lot of research the best I could based on, on my learning disabilities that I had. So I, um, what I discovered and I was thrilled about was that there, there was other players involved with this. And um, AA history starts long before AA, obviously. And it just is a perfect distillation for me of all these different influences. And um, then I was able to become sold on the steps and, and start to work them. And um the first person, um, there was a gentleman, his name is Roland Hazard. I don't know if I'm violating anything by using both of his names. He's no longer with us. Um, he is a son of a very prominent family, and he was able to afford to go see the best psychiatrist in order to stop drinking. And he looked up Freud. Freud was too busy. Deb Adler. Adler was too busy. And he found Dr. Young. And so he went to Europe, and he was in Europe for a year, and he studied with him or did psychology or psychiatry with him for a year once a week. 
And he came back home. He thought that he had conquered his demons. And um, he came back home after a year, and he was drunk within three months. And he was very puzzled because he thought he did everything that he was supposed to do. And he went back to he went back to Young, and Young told him about the spiritual experiences that he had experienced or had witnessed or had knew about through his research that people had to have in order to stay sober, in order to stop drinking. And he he recommended that um, this young man do the same, that he find some sort of group where he could have the spiritual experience. And he found the spiritual experience by attending Oxford groups. And Oxford groups were set was set up by, I want to say, a Lutheran minister. And I'm not sure if they started in England or if they started in New York. Um, I think he attended the ones in New York. And he, obviously he had a spiritual experience and he was able to stay sober. And so he started to recruit other gentlemen um, that had an alcohol problem in order to um, to have these spiritual experiences came the six tenets of the Oxford group. And I don't know if I said it already, but the Oxford group practiced first century, second century Christianity. And the six tenets of the Oxford group were surrender, which is the AA's um, step three, inventory, which is the AA's step four, confession, which is AA's step five, restitution, which is our... Um, Eight and nine, and step um, uh, prayer and meditation, which is our step eleven, and then carrying the message to others or helping others is our step twelve. So our AA step twelve, I should say. And um, soon after Roland got sober and was was staying sober, he had a friend, and I think his name was Zebra Graves. I and his father was a judge. And there was a gentleman, his name was Ebby Thatcher. And he was going to go in front of Zebra Graves' father. on, And he was going to be sent away for alcohol confinement or sent away to go to the sanitarium. Uh, what ended up happening is he was, his father was the mayor of Albany, New York. And he was an embarrassment to the family and he was sent away to the summer home either in I believe it was in Vermont and he ended up drinking and I've heard two stories on this I'm not sure maybe both of them happened um, one was that he was supposed to paint while he was there and he had got drunk and he was painting he got mad at some birds that were landing on his painting and he shot them and so he was arrested for that um, the other story that I heard or read was that he was driving his car and he ended up crashing through somebody's kitchen it, during breakfast and scared the, the housewife half to death. And so anyway, he was brought in front of the the judge and Roland Hazard and Zebra Graves convinced the judge to release him into their custody so they could take him to the Oxford group meeting so he could have his spiritual experience and, and, um, Stay sober. Remain sober. Let me let me just so throw a happens? question in here at this point. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, uh, I, I wasn't familiar with the Oxford group and its link with AA, but uh, certainly uh, you know several of the steps are there. Uh, 
And the one point of uh, of meeting with this work from the first century Aramaic of, of that of forgiveness of going inside to remove the root of pain, which I see as the compulsive factor in alcohol that most people, you know, they call letting other people off the hook for their pain, forgiveness. And so oftentimes tradition becomes forgiving them or forgiving self as opposed to being able to drop inside and remove what blocks uh, one from experiencing themselves as they truly are as love. And uh, and I noticed that in the Oxford Steps, there's no mention of forgiveness. I find that interesting and that being such, to me, an important step in the process. Absolutely. And I think me and you have discussed this before. I believe that the Oxford group was based out of the Greek. You know, I think, okay. I think well, that, that, makes, would be, that, that would be, yeah, absolutely. Um, and that was a lot of the things that I discovered, and we'll, we'll discuss him later, but Emmett Fox is a player. And, and this as well. And Emmett Fox, um, it says on the back of his, a lot of his books that he was, you know, theologian, theologian, scientist, early founder of of Alcoholics Anonymous. Not founder, I'm sorry, early contributor to Alcoholics Anonymous. And there's a lot of influence in Bill Wilson's writing in in the Big Book that I see. I could correlate Emmett Fox's writing with with Bill Wilson's writing as well. Right. Um, and and so I see my my writing my reading of Emmett Fox and and um, well I'm getting way off topic I'll I'll probably approach Emmett Fox later but a, a lot of the stuff that I see with Emmett Fox's writing is he doesn't go deep enough like the Aramaic goes and and he left a real hunger for me to go deeper he says do this but he doesn't say how to do this and what I love and appreciate about the Aramaic is you demonstrate how to do this. You just don't say do this. You say this is how we do this. And um, That is such an important key in the whole process, isn't it? I know that, uh, you know, there's there's lots of conversation in the Western world about forgiveness, but, uh, well, actually what purports to be forgiveness and it becomes a matter of pardoning substituted for forgiveness rather than the actual experience where once one realizes that if they're in pain, it's because of something inside of them. It's not about forgiving anybody else or forgiving themselves, but rather it's about how to find the place inside that sources the pain that for most people cries out for an anesthetic. And I think we might have Dave Gilbert on the phone, and he may have a uh, a thought to contribute there. I know we had a conversation when he heard that uh, that we were going to be doing the scale. He had uh, called me, and he's a gentleman who's been working with the uh, the Y tools for, gee, I'm not even sure now, several years. And uh, actually, he's up with Dr. Tim's group in Chicago, and uh, he's been helping us assemble a book which at some point we're we're going to get to a completion point on and uh, and make available with just all of the tools and all of the key thoughts. But uh, Jeannie, is uh, is Dave there with his hand up? He is. David, you're on. Hello. Hey there, young man. How are you? Yeah, this is Dave. How are you? I'm doing wonderful. I am well. Welcome. I'm getting some beautiful feedback. On you might want computer. to mute the uh, computer in the background. 
Yeah, that's it. Now I've got it down. Well, good. Well, thanks a lot for the call in and send. There's a lot of good information there. And uh, I belong to this 12-step program. And I, have, uh, I haven't found it uh, necessary to take a drink or a drug since October 20th, 1994. And uh, the thing about it was, you know, uh, I was I was the victim all my life. Briefly, just real briefly, because I want to bring it up to love and forgiveness. Uh, you know, dad died when I was 18 months old, and I was always jealous of my friends having their dads around. And then mom died when I was 12, and uh, I was uh, sexually molested by uh, one uncle when I was about eight or nine. I went to live with another uncle who was a coal miner, and since I was a mama's boy, he was going to teach me to be a man and teach me how to fight and drink and carouse in bars. Uh, well, my life ended when my mom died, as far as I got known now. The truth about it is I didn't understand any of that then, that my life ended I, when, uh, when, when mom died. So it was totally uh, a shock to have a disciplinarian in, instead of... Uh, being babied and, and all the rest of it. But uh, I couldn't take it much. And, uh, and when I was 17, I was uh, going to graduate high school. And I uh, I joined the Navy. And uh, when you join at 17, you get out the day before you're 21. So I became a Navy corpsman and attached to the Marine Corps. Uh, 67, 68, Ted Vietnam, wounded. And... Uh, Finally made it. I, I made it back to the states, and like I said, I was going to get out of the service the day before I was 21. And I walked off the base on my 21st birthday, and I said, "You know, what? world has really not been really fair, and it owes me." And I went to a party when I was 21, and I came home when I was 46. And a little levity there, but that was the truth. I mean, uh, it's, a long ab- it's a long absence. Yeah, yeah, really. And uh, uh, you know, a lot of a uh, lot of uh, hurt people along the way. But but I didn't really care at that point of the time. I, I my solution was alcohol. My selection, when it went, solution was was uh, being accepted. I was going to do anything in the world. To be accepted by you. Uh, Mom and dad didn't have any choice. They died. But uh, through the 12-step program, you know, I found out that rejection and abandonment was was something in my mind, not theirs. And uh, even that came along with, with your work. Uh, about, uh, the, the 12-step program is really wonderful. It, uh, it made me responsible to a degree of... Uh, of taking, you know, my life back. It showed me where I had been a victim for 46 years and, and stuff happens and you got to go on and live. And I became, uh, I I've I been lucky enough to be around the program and, and help some people. But uh, when I was uh, about 50, uh, about 58, oh, no, I was about 60, I, uh, I went to the doctor, and uh, uh, they sent me to the VA doctor, and the VA sent me down to see some 
some genius doctor who lives in Crystal Lake by the name of Dr. Hayes. I never knew who he was. So, uh, he said, oh, hey, I Dr. Tim. Yeah, you betcha. And uh, uh, he said, you got PTSD. And uh, so that started that off. You know, I didn't realize they had post-traumatic stress syndrome. The, the government says, I, I've got uh, uh, anger issues and, and uh, anxiety issues, but uh, they haven't really said I've got PTSD unless unless I want to take some mind-altering drugs. It's a lot easier to get to get disability, and I don't really want to do that. I told Dr. Tim that. But anyway, after I hooked up with Dr. Tim, and uh, I was trying to get through this, this things that were happening, uh, that brought about this PTSD. I, I couldn't get it out. He worked with me for about six months before I wrote my first sentence on what it was I thought was causing my my post-traumatic stress. Uh, we had done my shifters, and after some series of my shifting and tapping and, and beginning your work pretty good, your work came a little, you know, after this. You know, I mean, the the faucet was open, and it just poured out. I came up with, like, 35 instances of post-traumatic stress syndrome when I was in a service, and that was freeing. So then we go around to why is this happening to me, because, you know, even though I was living a pretty good life and, and I was responsible for a lot of things, I'd get into mood swings. Uh, I would... Uh, hold things in, and uh, uh, after a while, I'd just blow a cork, and I didn't realize until I started listening to more than one of, of, uh, of uh, their seminars, and seeing the in-person a number of times, too, that uh, I was denying and suppressing this stuff, and, uh, you know, I thought I was turning it over to a higher power. I thought I was doing pretty good. But uh, as was pointed out to me, uh, if I was getting rid of it, it wouldn't be coming back. And you brought up the fact that, uh, you know, we, somebody pushes the button or the file folder, and then here it comes, you know, and then I bring it up and I project it back into the world again. And that's like a reason when I refeel it again, you know, recentari in Latin for refeel. And I was refeeling it again. And I really didn't know how to dismantle it. And this is where you and Dr. Hayes and Jeannie and, and uh, uh, a whole bunch of them come, come into play here. And uh, uh, I was loving forgiveness. You know, it was all about forgiveness. And I didn't understand that. I thought I'd forgiven everybody. You know, steps eight and nine talk about in, in, in the 12-step program. You know, and eight of them are ready to go out and ask for forgiveness from other people. I need to start by forgiving them, and uh, and that's a that's a process too. And so I had a lot of people that, uh, uh, what you know, what makes the forgiveness process easier is the uh, the love side that, that that you always talk about the the birth of a of a, of a newborn baby, all all the positive things rather than the victim side, what do I feel when I've done something, you know, that I regret, you know, all that negative. And uh, so 
One of the things that really caught my attention when we talked the other day, Dave, was uh, when you spoke about how you engaged in what you thought was forgiveness. And then when you came into contact with the Aramaic concept, realizing that it was about going inside and removing what doesn't belong. And, you know, for those who've never engaged in that tool or that process, it seems like it must be some kind of a fantasy. If I have in certain circumstances, rage or guilt or fear or trauma of some kind, you mean I can actually, really, truly live in a world where I'm free of that? And, of course, I can't live in a world where I'm free of that if I forgive you for it or if I try to let myself off the hook for it. But when I engage in that first century Aramaic process and I'm able to drop into the part of my own mind that holds that pain and this is the the point that I really want to focus here with with this week and talking to people who are looking at family dynamics with the holidays coming up and such is that you know if I've lived for 20 or 50 or 70 years and it's trauma time around the holidays that I could actually go to a holiday gathering with those same people, and if I do my forgiveness work, I don't need to take my fear, my anger, my sadness, my grief, my rage with me. I can remove that, and I can be in the presence of those people and remember who they are, even if they don't. Remember who I am as love, as you talk about, Dave, the newborn. Uh, remember who I am as love. And I can experience those family gatherings totally free of that trauma once I've engaged in the first century Aramaic forgiveness process. And if, if there's anybody who's listening that you say to yourself, well, I, I can't believe that's really possible. If you haven't engaged in the first century Aramaic forgiveness process, if you go to whyagain.org, and we offer this just as an augmentation to anybody who's in a 12-step program when you're, you're talking about forgiveness, to recognize that the word forgive means remove. It doesn't mean let somebody off the hook. And if you go to our website and you scroll down a little bit, you'll see a bullseye in the middle of the page. And when you click that bullseye, it'll walk you through a whole series of steps on here's how forgiveness works. And there's a, a worksheet there that you call the reality management or wake-up sheet that is the how-to go into depth in the mind and literally remove the capacity for pain or trauma. And, and that's what really I want to stress and, and offer support to people that if, if you're heading into these holidays and you have some trepidation about family gatherings and such, start to work with that tool and you can go to those family gatherings with no trauma whatsoever. And to me, that's a miraculous thing. And, and Dave, when we talked the other day, you, you made mention of, you know, that you realized that you had been just denying it and suppressing it rather than allowing forgiveness to occur. So that was a, a, a big contribution to the conversation for me. You know, the other, it's, it, you know, it's a process going through the 12 steps. I can't get everything that you offer all at once either. But there's some great exactly. nuggets nuggets that we can hold on to, like uh, one of the things that, that, you know, you're getting ready to go into a place that's that's uh, busy or you're going to run into somebody you don't want to, 
one of the things that you always said, you know, that uh, definition of humility, you know, look for the highest and best in someone and then choose to cooperate only with that highest and best. Now, that's a tool because I I have to remember that I come from an, an addictive mind. And once I have an addictive mind, I'm always going to have an addictive mind. I may I may love and forgive somebody today and actually mean it, but I have the capacity to really hate that person if I don't pick up these tools on a regular basis. But that's that's my addiction. That's that's because I spent all my life wanting you guys to take care of me and make sure my needs were met. And I was really into selfishness and dishonesty and self-seeking and fearful and inconsiderate. Those were the tools that I had to get the things that I needed to fill me. Today fills me is love and forgiveness, period. And And, And for anybody who's listening... For anybody who's listening that's not familiar with the first century Aramaic forgiveness process, when when Dave mentions hatred, that he had the capacity for that, is that forgiveness is about literally removing that capacity for hatred. It's Forgiveness is applied to remove hatred. It is applied to remove fear. It is applied to remove sadness, so that when we find ourselves in a circumstance that otherwise would trigger those things in us, if we've done the work of freeing ourselves from it, we can be in that circumstance and not be impacted by it. So that's yeah, awesome, that's, Dave. We're uh, we're delighted you're on the team. Right. Well, that's that's a big thing. You know, you're saying when when you start doing these worksheets. Now, when I hear people talk about it, when I heard about it at first, it wasn't part of my experience. And I believed it worked for you, but it was a theory for me. And it right. wasn't. And it wasn't until I took the bit in the teeth, and I didn't want I didn't want to. I did five sheets a day for forty days, and I really didn't want. To, what am I doing this for? To save my life, to save my sanity, you know. And uh, uh, you know what? Forty days, five a day. I had to, I had to work this, but from that it became my experience, and it was no longer a theory. That's awesome, Dave, and we're delighted that you're on the team. Let's uh, let's see what else Gail has to share with us. Gail? Absolutely. Thank you very much. Hey, delighted. Stay with us, sir. Okay, we'll do. I'm starting to understand what Mutowns means on an experiential level. <laughs> okay, I, I know what that is, too. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Okay, so anyway, back to the story, and thank you so much for sharing, Dave. That was great. I really appreciated what you had to say. And um, anyway, back to Ebby getting saved. Um, he got saved by Roland Hazard and Seabird Graves at, at his court hearing, and they took him to the Oxford Group meeting, and he was able to maintain some sobriety. And when he had his spiritual experience and was able to stay sober, he took the message of sobriety to Bill Wilson uh, in New York. Um, this was in November of 1934. 
and they had a conversation around Bill Wilson's kitchen table in New York City. I believe they lived in Brooklyn at the time. And um, he basically took Bill through um, the, the, uh, the tenants of the Oxford group. And he, was, he had his bright light spiritual experience in the town's hospital. And he wanted to um, carry the message on to others. I would like to take the side note of the, the, the gentleman, Ebby Thatcher, was a school friend of Bill Wilson, and he did, wasn't able to maintain sobriety. And I don't believe that he died sober, but he was able to bring the message to Bill Wilson. And Bill Wilson was able, from the time that he got sober in 1934, he was able to stay sober mm -hmm. until he died in 1971. And um, so anyway, Bill Wilson is had this bright light spiritual experience. He's able to maintain sobriety. He wants to save the world. He goes around to all the bars and to all the try to find all those drinking buddies and drag them to to um, the Oxford group meetings, and it's not working out so well for him. And he's becoming very um, depressed and having a lot of despair that he's not helping others. Nobody's listening to him. And it was suggested you, by you mean the other doctor. people. You mean other people aren't ready to just jump on the bandwagon and make changes? Gee, that's shocking. Yes. I've never seen that happen before. <laughs> <laughs> well, he, he, was, he was given two messages. He was given one message from his wife, and she was the co-founder of Al-Anon, which is the 12-step group for um, families and friends of alcoholics. Um, she basically right. said, well, you're staying sober. You know, you may not be getting others sober, but you're staying sober, and that's really important. And the message that he got from the the um, they call him Doctor Silkworth. Um, he was the doctor that Bill Wilson worked with quite a bit um, at the town's hospital in, in Brooklyn. And he said. Well, not only are you staying sober, but you need, instead of talking about the bright light spiritual experience that you had, you need to talk about what the problem is. And that is our step one. Um, and we get our step one from Dr. Silkworth. We get step two from Dr. Young. And and so he talked about, um, you need to talk about the allergy is the powerlessness you know i we admitted we are powerless over alcohol and then there's a dash and that our lives have become unmanageable and then you need to talk about the obsession which is our thinking and so he started to do that and the first time he was able to do that was when he went on a business trip to akron ohio in 1935 and he ended up in the mayflower hotel the the business deal went through um, we also have to discuss that the the stock um, exchange or the the um, in 1929 the Wall Street crash had happened and he uh, Bill Wilson was a stock uh, was a stockbroker and um, he lost a lot of money and um, so anyway they're trying to get everything patched back up and it, this is in the middle of the depression and they had a business deal and it fell through and he didn't have enough money to pay his bill and so he's walking back and forth 
in the Mayflower Hotel trying to decide, do I go into the bar or do I stay sober? And then he remembered that he needs to talk to others and uh, other alcoholics in order to achieve his sobriety. So he went to the um, pay, uh, the phone booth, and he started to call churches. And he got a hold of a woman named Henry Ed- Henrietta. Oh gosh, I can't remember her last name. Um, she put anonymity, and I I broke that a few minutes ago, and my apology for that. But we can just go with Henrietta. Okay, we could go with Henrietta. Um, and she uh, put him in touch with Doctor Bob, and he was he had the, his first conversation with somebody. When um, he talked about his experience with drinking and what happened to him and how he felt, and he talked about the allergy, and he talked about his, his thinking, and he talk, talked about his feelings, and they were able to get – he was able to relate. And they they had this conversation on Mother's Day. Dr. Bob, after a lot of urging from his wife, and said, I'm only giving this man 15 minutes of my time. And he ended up talking to Bill for five hours. And so they basically came Bob up with was... a formula. The second founder or the second member of um, Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, ah, okay, he was cool. a, And so he, he talked to him. Um, he didn't stay sober on Mother's Day. His sobriety date was June 10th of 1935, and that is also the anniversary date of Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, he stayed, uh, Bill Wilson stayed with Dr. Bob, and um, then they, Dr. Bob had access to, he, he I, I know I'm jumping around everywhere. Dr. Bob was actually a member of the Oxford group um, before he met Bill Wilson, but he didn't, uh, he didn't know about the allergy to alcohol and he didn't know about the obsession of the mind. And so when he finally talked to somebody that was just like him and how to apply the Oxford group tenants, then he was able to maintain sobriety after 19, uh, uh, June 10th, 1935. So Bill Wilson stayed with him. Go ahead. Um, He stayed with him and his wife until that fall, and then he returned back home to to New York. Uh, member number three was a gentleman named Bill Dotson. He was a lawyer, I believe, and they, the two of them, went to the hospital that um, Dr. Bob worked at, and um, did that same formula. They talked about their drinking. They didn't tell him what he should do, and then. You know, he said, yeah, I'm an alcoholic. I want to do what you guys are doing. And so then they, they ran him through the tenants of, of the Oxford group. And then the, the alcoholics started to attend Oxford group meetings, and they started to call them the drunk squad of the Oxford groups um, because basically they would be in their own little corner, and they'd be smoking cigarettes and, and drinking coffee and talking about abstaining from alcohol. And so a decision was made to separate from the Oxford group. Um, 
start to write their own literature because the word of mouth passing on was starting to change and they wanted to keep it pure. They wanted to keep the message pure. And in the process of, of writing the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, tenants grew into, I mean, I'm sorry, the six tenants of the Oxford group grew into the 12 steps. Cool. And it's interesting. I, I remember the first time that, uh, in, in Atlanta, this goes back about, uh, let's see, 37 or 38 years ago. I had a, a small center in Atlanta, and uh, we were doing things like raw food and that sort of thing, and there was a, a medical doctor from um, who was a cancer researcher and professor at uh, Emory University that I began to work with. He began to study with me. And uh, he, was, he had been in the AA uh, tradition, and was handling alcohol, but uh, didn't quite get the forgiveness piece. And he started to work with me, and and uh, then he asked if I would work with uh, some of his uh, the people he sponsored, which I did. And I remember the first uh, workshop that I did with them uh, at my center, where uh, we served hot water and had tea bags. And it was a no smoking space, and I remember the uh, the trepidation when you when you mentioned that they sat in the corner by themselves, uh, smoking cigarettes and drinking coffee, uh, and, and there wasn't a lot of receptivity at that point for recognizing that a switch of addictions had occurred, and that caffeine was an addictive substance, and that nicotine was extremely addictive. And uh, so I remember, you know, when you mentioned that with a with a smile. Uh, there was the, the medical doctor's name was Bill, uh, incidentally or coincidentally, and um, we had many uh, many interesting conversations and and good laughs about you know he wasn't a, a coffee drinker nor a smoker, but uh, about how much uh, restlessness there was with that first group at my center where we didn't serve coffee and uh, and there was no smoking, so. Yeah. And, and of course, we encourage people to, whenever there's a need for something that's addictive, to really reach for a worksheet instead and drop into the part of the mind that holds uh, a compulsion, a need to prevent feelings by use of some substance or activity and uh, to use a worksheet instead with the willingness to drop into that part of the mind and remove it forgive it rather than than have to anesthetize it. So anyway, you just, just kind of uh, brought up a, a little, uh, a sweet humorous space. Uh, Dr. Bill is, uh, has passed since then. He became a very dear friend. We spent several years working together and uh, he became a very dear friend. He actually, I remember one day he, uh, he called me on the phone in tears, literally in tears, he had tenure and uh, at Emory University, and he called me and said, Michael, I, if I keep doing this real healing work, I, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm not going to be able to survive at Emory, and I have two children in college, and I have a $400,000 mortgage. It's a big, beautiful home in Atlanta. And he's like, and I'm not going to be able to stay at Emory because I'm directing these people toward healing 
and it was a, a major trauma for him, and he actually ended up having to leave Emory, and I created a very successful, actually it was a big upgrade for him because he created a very successful healing practice rather than medical practice, so it was kind of, uh, kind of interesting to, uh, to see that happen. So, Jeannie tells me that we've got uh, several hands up. Maybe we could just take a couple of minutes and uh, and here have someone else share and uh, and step in and then continue our conversation, Gail. Awesome. Jeannie? Awesome. Okay. Cool. Okay. I uh, got a text from Julie, and she said um, there was a book title called "The Organized Mind" by Daniel Levitin, L-E-V-I-T-I-N, uh-huh. and also a radio station uh, in the archive that talks about that and it's uh, Jefferson Public Radio so it's ijpr.org and so she was just wanting to put that out but then we do have uh, two hands up and the first one is uh, area code 336 you're on the air who do we have Area code three three six. No, I'm good. Thank you. All right, bye. Area code three three six. You're on the air. Okay, they must go elsewhere. <laughs> so the other one is Julie, I believe. Area code five four one. You're on the air. Well, I'm Julie, here. did you have? Yay. Yes. So, this book, I just happened to hear an interview of the author, and this is a great radio. She just disappeared. Okay, so Dr. Tim, you're on, and we haven't heard from you yet. Hey there, young man. You've been been mentioned. You've gotten your honorable mention. Uh, Something to share with us, Tim? Well, I'm just enjoying the the recap of the history, and uh, I'm I'm looking forward to hearing more from Gail. Um, this is an area I've worked a lot with people who are in the program, but I haven't studied it the way people like Gail and and Dave have. So, I'm learning and reviewing. Awesome, cool. All right, well let's uh, let's uh, we, we've got about five minutes, six minutes left, so let's go back to uh, to Gail and and uh, hear what else she has to share. Um, so I basically got the, the history down. I mean, the rest is history, so to speak, um, just how it okay. got handed down. <laughs> and and it's obviously grown, and um, there's millions of people that have been able to maintain sobriety by working the steps and, and formulating meetings. And there's also like 250 other registered 12-step groups that, you know, deal with everything from food addiction to sex addiction, gambling addiction, uh, codependency, et cetera, et cetera. So obviously the steps work. Um, My personal history is three years ago I had an insobriety bottom to where I was really starting to look at there's got to be something deeper. Um, There's just got to be something else. Because I was working the steps, um, I I had a change in sponsorship and was working the steps again and just was not getting that relief. And, um, And I think that's what opened my eyes and started to really look for something else. And this 
the Aramaic forgiveness process most definitely does that. That that relief is there. That relief is instantaneous. And also it does remove it instead of like what Dave was saying earlier about, um, okay, I feel like I've forgiven. I feel like I've worked, worked the steps. I feel like I've had asked God to remove these things. And I've gone to other people to ask for their forgiveness. The relief just isn't there. And, um, and I think, I believe that that led that, that bottom led to me finding you, uh, you know, finding Dale and then finding you and, and starting to em- embrace this. Awesome. You know, Gail, you, uh, you mentioned at one point with, uh, with, uh, some of the sharing that was done, you, you used the words, thank you for sharing. And, uh, which is, yes. uh, I guess it, Kind of almost a part of the AA tradition, and yeah. uh, I, I just throw in a thought, and I, I invite anyone who's dealt with any kind of addiction. And by the way, in this work, we could, we define addiction as a compulsive use of any person, circumstance, substance, or activity to keep from hearing and following your fi- highest guidance, or to keep from feeling, dealing with, and communicating about your pain. And so that's our definition of addiction. And one of the things that this film, and I'd invite anyone who's dealing with addiction to jump on Amazon. I think we paid, I don't know, $7 or something for the DVD of this movie. Uh, Thank you for sharing. And it is in particular around sex addiction. But one of the things that it really highlights very powerfully and people who've done the codependence workshop that I do have heard me mention for decades now that the granddaddy of addictions, the, 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 the source code for addiction is hostility. That's the first indicator. And you know, pick up and watch this film, and they demonstrate very clearly that every person who's dealing with an addiction throughout the movie, and the whole thing's about addiction, that the precursor to their falling off the wagon is unresolvable hostility. Hostility being an internal drug that anesthetizes against pain. And so one of the things to watch folks is, and and I really want to make this practical for people who are going into the holidays, is the first thing that will, will give you the indicator that you might be getting ready to fall off the wagon and use your addictive substance is that there's hostility coming into your mind that seems unresolvable. And that's the first place to start to use the forgiveness worksheet process, the reality management wake-up sheet, to collapse the root of hostility and to stand in a space of love. And, and, and that film just really demonstrates that very clearly. And we are down to just the last minute or so. So, Gail, we'll pick this conversation up tomorrow and uh, awesome. move it forward to the next level. And, and thank you for that history. I, there were several, I've, I've heard some of the history of the A program, but there were several pieces that you filled in. And I'll be doing some more research on the Oxford group. That was uh, really cool to hear about. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. Thank you. All right. Well, everybody, you know, Create the best year yet of your eternal life. Have awesome holy days together with your family. If something blocks it, know that it can be removed with the wake-up sheet. We're here to create that support, and any support we can be, that's our goal. So blessings. 
Have an awesome day. Bless Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Mind Shifters Radio with the Forgiveness Doctor, Dr. Michael Rice and his wife, Jeannie, who present the internal Aramaic process of forgiveness. Michael and Jeannie are here every Monday through Friday on Earth Angels Radio. For more on Michael and Jeannie, please visit www.yagain.com. That's www.whyagain.com.